For 25 years, IT giant IBM has operated a government-focused think tank. It's called the IBM Center for the Business of Government. To commemorate, the center is holding an essay contest. It'll take the form of a challenge grant and seeks essays on the future of government. For details, the center's executive director, Dan Chenock. Dan, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Always good to talk to you. So tell us what you're doing here. Are you seeking essays or are the essays en route to something larger in terms of a challenge grant? So a little of both. We always are thinking about what's next for government. And to commemorate our 25th year since our founding, we wanted to have people in government, academics who are working and studying government, nonprofit partners, give us ideas about what the future holds in a number of different areas. We've done these kinds of challenge grants before, and it really sparks a lot of imagination across the field in terms of what can come next and, and what are some good ideas for what government might look like in the future and how to get there. And you have some specific areas you're actually looking to look into. Yes, correct. So we picked six domains, and one could write about any one or a combination. And the domains are artificial intelligence, data and evidence. Number three is cloud. Four is cyber. Five is shared services. And six is customer experience. And within each domain, we kind of have a little statement of the state of play, if you will, in terms of how government's addressing that domain and how partners are helping government advance. And then some questions to stoke some ideas. And the process will work that people will send us sort of an abstract, if you will. And then we will review the submissions and we'll give grants with some stipends to write up a longer essay for those that are sort of reached the top of the pile. And definitely a technology application focus here. You're not looking at the government as an employer or training or best places to work, that kind of focus that a lot of other organizations are focusing on these days. We're looking at the application of these technologies to do the business of government better. So yes, they are kind of technologies at the front end, although we are looking at shared services, which is a broader element and how agencies set up customer experience effectively, which is a broader topic. And then more importantly, we're looking at not just, you know, what's cool about the technology and where is it going to be in five years, but how can this help agencies deliver a better service to constituents receiving things like student aid or grants from HHS or services through the IRS? Can you be open to something that may not be on the list that nobody's thought of? We framed the challenge grant with these six areas. But if somebody has a brilliant idea aside from the six, whether it's through the challenge grant or otherwise, we're always open to a dialogue on that. And to whom is this open? Can anybody submit something or do they have to be a federal employee? No, anybody can submit. In fact, in the last challenge grant we did for our 20th anniversary, we had a number of state government employees, two from King County, Washington, who submitted and responded. So we welcome ideas from federal employees, from federal partners, from academics, uh, really anybody. It's best idea wins and we'll go that way. I was going to say the IBM Center doesn't simply focus on federal either, does it? No, we have a, a remit that's state and local and that's also international. Um, we do a lot of work with OECD on topics, and we have a number of large initiatives that are international in scope as well. And we've really, over the 25 years, sort of expanded that work as governments have learned that good ideas, good thinking from academics who are really studying these issues and packaging those ideas in a way that's usable by government and implementable is a niche that hadn't really been filled. The center kind of sits at that cross-section between academic research and government practice, and that's really what we are trying to focus on here as well. 
We are speaking with Dan Chenock. He's executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government and also former federal official himself way back. And in the challenge grant, what is the grant part of it? In other words, somebody's going to judge these and then you'll get more extensive essays. Then what happens? We provide the stipend to those people that are awarded the extensive essay. We will write in the later part of the year, we're still kind of determining the shape of this. It might be in a book form or it might be a long form report, but we'll publish the essays. We'll work with the authors uh, who are the winners to publish. We'll also look for ideas, even from essays that didn't necessarily win the challenge grant. There might be good ideas across a range of essays. So we're going to look for themes and work with a variety of folks on that. And then we'll release this at a 25th anniversary event that we're planning on in uh, late fall, maybe a Christmas holiday type thing or a holiday season activity. So Tom, you'll be invited. All right. I'll look forward to it. We'll make it a party. And by the way, the prize is $2,500 to the finalists. $2,500 to the finalists. And by the way, we should talk about the center itself. I mean, you described a little bit about what it does, but what are your priorities? What do you see ahead? I mean, you've been looking at this. You've probably been 20 years at the IBM Center and then spent a long time at OMB. So what do you see ahead, Dan? Yeah, actually, I've been here about 10 years, but uh, time flies. (laughs) Well, it seems like 20. seems like you've always been there. So we have a number of priorities that we're working on this year in addition to the challenge grants. One is we're working with the National Academy of Public Administration on a series of convenings called Future Shocks, which are designed to help the U.S. and foreign governments, allied partners and state and local governments as well, kind of understand how to get better for the next risk event that can happen which used to be called black swans, but are increasingly getting more light and color because they're getting more frequent. Or it's more a flock of black swans. Right. So most of the time people have treated these in particular domains like cyber, supply chain, climate. But there are skills and capabilities within those domains that carry across for learning, but people don't necessarily think about it that way. So we're convening a series of sessions in the U.S., and working with the Organization for Economic and Cooperation Development overseas to address sort of what are the learnings in each of these areas, and then how can one area teach another? So how can responding to a cyber incident teach people who are in supply chain management about how to understand sort of the cyber risks in a supply chain? Or how can we develop workforce skills that can enable government to be better able to anticipate and respond to disasters? And for each of these, we're writing reports And we're going to have a big capstone event at the National Academy for Public Administration fall meeting in November. Chris Mim, the former GAO uh, Director of Strategic Issues, I'm sure a frequent guest of yours uh, in the past, is actually our integrating author. And Chris, after leaving GAO, has been working with the UN and the World Health Organization, among other places. And we're we're fortunate to have Chris. And we've had Tony Scott, as you uh, know, Tom, on your show recently, who wrote the report on cyber. So that's one set of initiatives. Another is... A really different domain, but in the military and intelligence context, we're working with the Institute for the Study of War, a group that's well known because they produce the maps that are often in the paper on the Ukraine conflict. We're working with them on how do you visualize information operations during time of warfare or uh, generally. So we know how to draw a map of tanks. The military has lots of ways to articulate different domains of warfare. We don't really have a discipline for how do you articulate information operations in a visual form. And so we've been holding uh, roundtable discussions with defense leaders, intelligence leaders, both in the U.S., Europe, and with our allied partners in the Pacific. And we'll be releasing a paper on that 
uh, in May, where we try to advance the state of the art. So those are two of our major projects this year, in addition to our ongoing work with authors to publish research that benefits government. Sounds like you could update the great drawings of the great late Edward Tufte here in terms of graphicizing <laughs> of the art of war. I studied Tufte in grad school. I remember those well. It's amazing how many disciplines do study him. Dan Chenock is executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate being here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the essay contest at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. 
You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. 
At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.